Hi, good evening. Uh, welcome to the National Academy. Uh, I'm Marshall Price, the curator of modern and contemporary art, and welcome to the first review panel of 2011. Um, just to let you know, our galleries are currently closed. They are undergoing a fairly major renovation, but don't worry, we're going to be reopening in mid-September, so um, stay tuned, and uh, uh, we hope to see you all in the fall when, when we do reopen. Um, also, just another reminder that uh, the March review panel will be March 4th, and the participants will be Robert Storr, Sarah Valdez, and Joan Waltemath. So uh, we hope to see you all there as well. Uh, thanks to DCA and NISCA for helping underwrite this program. Um, and now on to the introduction of the moderator tonight. Uh, David Cohen is the editor of artcritical.com, and he will introduce tonight's panelists. Please welcome David Cohen. Thank you very much indeed, Marshall, and to all your able colleagues here at the wonderful National Academy that uh, battles through the renovation to continue with this forum of criticism. Criticism can't wait for the galleries to be finished, has to continue its vital work. So very, very touched um, that this institution that supported this project from the outset, it's a collaboration between Art Critical Magazine and the National Academy, um, has, has not allowed its renovations to get in the way of another riveting season of this program. As Marshall mentioned, the next panel on March the, is on March the 4th, and um, early next week we'll have the lineup of shows confirmed, so please do check either the National Academy website or artcritical.com uh, slash review panel, and the vital information will be there. And if you want to get it hot off the press before anybody else, uh, make sure that you've signed up to the bulletins. Uh, the Art Critical Bulletin gives uh, advanced information on everything to do with the review panel. Uh, Art Critical is where we host podcasts of the review panel. You'll be delighted to know, those of you who have been waiting with some anxiety, that October and November, fully and exquisitely sound edited by our engineer, Graham White, uh, were posted this afternoon. So you can go and listen to um, earlier installments from this season and indeed all, in, all seasons at artcritical.com. And now my great pleasure is to introduce the panelists. Uh, on my left is Elizabeth Clay. Uh, no, is Carol Deal. <laughs> uh, you might have been worried if I said on my left is Hilary Sheets, um, <laughs> who um, uh, Carol valiantly uh, replaced in the series. Hilary will be joining us um, in the fall. Um, uh, Carol is a returnee. She's uh, already served with distinction on the review panel. She's a painter. Uh, she used to be represented by the Sydney Janice, Janice Gallery, Herschel and Adler, Gary Snyder Fine Art. She's currently a contributing editor to Art in America. Uh, she serves on the faculty at Bennington. Did. 
She used to serve on the <laughs> faculty at Bennington College, but, but she made such an impact that it feels like she's still it serving does. because the <laughs> criticism that she was able to offer reverberates still in the halls of that august liberal college up in Vermont. And uh, <laughs> at the... At, uh, presumably past tense, also at the Graduate Fine Arts Program of SVA. She's a former performance slam poet. Hopefully we won't get any proof of that tonight. And she's the author of the blog Art Vent. But we will, of course, get full advantage of her um, eloquence and ability to think on her feet, which come in part from her uh, poetic uh, ventures. Elizabeth Clay um, is a writer and also a maker, like Carol. Uh, in Elizabeth's case, she is a maker of ceramics, drawings, and prints. Um, and as a writer, she's um, to be seen uh, in, in many of our leading magazines, including Art in America and Parquet, both of which have uh, recently uh, carried recently. or uh, have, well, more recently than um, Ruskin and Roger Fry True. carried feature articles by uh, Elizabeth Clay, and she's also a writer at Art and Auction, um, Art News, and used to write for Performing Arts Journal. And Artnet. And Artnet. In fact, Artnet is where we can see most of her writing at right. present. Yes. And finally, another returnee to the series. Well, please welcome back, back Blake Gopnik who's just um, moved to New York City uh, in order to write about art and design, aesthetics, and culture in general for uh, Newsweek slash thedailybeast.com. He spent the previous decade in the federal capital where he was chief art critic at the Washington Post. He holds a doctorate in art history from Oxford and... Um, uh, as, as I say, he returns to the review panel. On the last occasion, we had the pleasure of introducing him here. Uh, he told us uh, that he was working on a complete history of public... No, pubic. Pubic. <laughs> public depilation is a different thing altogether. Okay. I guess you could do public pubic depilation. He has been working on a complete history of pubic depilation, and uh, that was reported to us in the last panel. Now we have the uh, great pleasure to, uh, to tell you all that uh, he's, he's uh, shaved his thesis to a point <laughs> and he has uh, presented his work in the current Cabinet magazine, adding one more curiosity to that Cabinet magazine. Ladies and gentlemen, welcome your panel. Elspergeur, Moffat. Very international lineup we have this, uh, this month. Evidently, Americans have given up making art. We have, uh, uh, we have somebody from France, somebody from Australia, somebody from Great Britain, and, in fairness, a US citizen, but from Great Britain. Um, that trivia notwithstanding, let's uh, turn our attention to these first two shows. So... Um, Elizabeth, things you can do to, with, for, against movies, Hollywood. I love it. I've been waiting 10 years for this show. Um, it's This show being Del Sperger. Del Sperger, yes. I was waiting. Ten, 10 years ago, I wrote about something else he did that was much more restrained. But this one is so over the top and 
I just love it. I love that it relates to another movie. It's like he's not only is um, his performer Jean-Luc Vernat in drag, but the whole movie's he's put the whole movie in drag. The, um, Maybe we should explain just the premise of the piece. Okay, the premise of the piece is that um, Brice Delsberger has a series of work that he's been working on since the 90s, and it's all called Body Double. It's a, um, they're all films that remake uh, iconic movies, and um, he remakes them with other characters. So what he does, for example, uh, the first one I saw was called was Dressed to Kill, and that's um, a famous movie where there's a scene in the, in the museum that this man and this woman are kind of chasing each other around the museum and flirting, and he redid it with himself as both characters so that it became like, it changed everything. It became an interaction between one person instead of between two, and also he was dressed as a woman, and it was a man and a woman, and now it was just two two cross-dressed individuals chasing each other around the museum. And it was interesting because also the plot of that movie, at the end it turns out that the person who murders the character that was chasing around in the museum is her psychoanalyst that's who a bit has of a cross plot spoiler, isn't it? But um, <laughs> what Brian so, De Palma will have to forgive us. Right. So that, And in this particular case, he's remade portions of two movies. The first one that you saw was um, a Fassbinder movie, which was about a man who had had a sex change operation. And this man is a big, hulking guy, and he, you know, even though he was physically now a woman, he's always going to look like a man. And what uh, Delsberger has done is taken this one section in the um, games arcade and replaced this one character who comes and confronts a man and then goes in the corner and cries with a whole series of performers who are start out as um, men in drag and then go through, you can't tell which is which, until at the end it's all women. Is that correct? Right. And the second movie, Carol, is based, is it not, on Eyes Wide Shut, the uh, yes. last posthumously released uh, Stanley Kubrick yes, movie. Yes, with stand-ins. With, uh, yes, he didn't quite get Tom Cruise and Nicole Kidman, as, as, uh, as, is, the, as, is, the, as is the premise that uh, uh, Elizabeth has been sharing with us. Well, so now we know, well... That's my view. Let's hear what your view is. <laughs> I loathed it. <laughs> I wish that the words gender and identity had been left in the last century. I found it tedious, dated, unattractive. I felt that because I was on this panel, I had to watch it for 37 and a half minutes, which I did. I want you to know I did that. Um, but there was nothing in it at all to engage me. I, I was so not engaged. And uh, I love Fassbinder. And I have a theory about art about art, which is when you make art about art, you're either not as good or better than the art you're making art about. So if you're not as good as that person, all you can be reminded of is how great Fassbender was. 
And if you're better than that person, then why are you taking yourself down to that level? So by remaking these things, I feel that the artist himself is, is not doing himself justice and uh, not doing the artist that he's riffing on justice. Yeah, Blake, let's, let's, let's focus on the choice of materials for a moment. I, when I've, I've seen Eyes Wide Shut, I'm ashamed to admit, more than once. And sometimes I've looked at it and wondered, ashamed, because it's really not Kubrick's best, but it's still Kubrick. And I sometimes wondered, looking at Kubrick's original, could this be worse? And I guess <laughs> if you lose Ligeti... Uh, Shostakovich and Nicole Kidman, it could be worse. So, um, uh, to me, Delsperger has performed a service by proving that point. Um, what has he done for you? I think he's performed a signal service by proving that point, or rather by proving, in a sense, how bad that Kubrick movie is. Um, I, I love the piece. I found it completely um, compelling. I mean, one of the things that impressed me so much about it, maybe it's not fair to say that that, that movie's that bad, but what, what amazed me about this piece is that the movie sort of survives, right? You get this giant, multiple-pierced um, man, um, easily in his 50s, wearing false breasts throughout the movie, playing all the roles in the Kubrick, and yet the fundamental thread of narrative seems to survive. There's something movie... There's, there's something still there of the original movie in the Desperger, and I, I thought that was sort of magical to demonstrate the way in which there's a robustness to the narrative, to cinematic narrative, that's different, I think, from other kinds of narrative robustness, that survived throughout this, this process, this insane process of redoing the whole thing. I was, I was hugely impressed by the, by the piece. Elizabeth, by, mostly by the piece in back. Yes, the, the Kubrick. The, the Kubrick, rather yes. than the other piece. Um, uh, Elizabeth, as somebody who's, who's passionately behind this, would you say that um, in redoing the, the Kubrick, um, the, the primary motivation is to extract more tenderness than was in the original or to um, in some way mock the original? Uh, is, it, is it primarily a humor or is there a, uh, a sort of rich vein of sin- sincerity in this? I think there's a rich vein of sincerity. I don't think he was trying to mock it. Mm-hmm. I mean, do you agree? Uh, well, yeah. I mean, it, I think there's a like lot of humor is. in it, but I don't feel that he was trying to mock that movie. If he did, he, was, he failed because, in fact, the movie yeah. comes off as being a strong, a strong object despite his manipulations, it seems to me. So in that sense, there's some kind of sense of, of proving the, the robustness of the movie despite what Dead Spelcher does to it. Okay, does that make sense? But uh, it, it could make sense, but it, the question is whether... <laughs> it just it, happens, it doesn't. It, it makes sense. It makes, it, it's plausible. Um, it, we just have to decide among ourselves if, we, if, it, if it works. And um, Carol... Um, are you a, what, do you have any feelings about the original? Do, have you, do you know the original? No, I actually walked into the original and um, saw about 15 minutes of it and went into the next theater. All oh, right. But you stayed okay. 37 minutes with this one. Was that only because, because you were obliged? I had you to. were obliged, don't know. Right. <laughs> so this is fascinating because you, your, your uh, experience of um, not just Kubrick, but also. Um, um, uh, Schindler's original, right? Uh, not Schindler. Uh, <laughs> help me, help That's me, help me. No, 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 no. The, the oh, Viennese. No, oh, no, no. Schindler. It is Schindler. Thank yeah. you. Schindler's. You're, 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 um, you've, by, you've, you've leapfrogged Kubrick to go straight from Dalsperger to the Austrian uh, secessionist uh, um, original in a way. Because yes, you have. Because you don't know. You don't. You haven't savored the uh, Kubrick. 
you, you are getting, and you, you, are, you are able to prove or disprove Blake's feeling. Blake's <laughs> assertion is that some of the charge, some of the drama of the original is retained in the reworking. And you are somebody who spent 37 minutes seeing the reworking and didn't see the original. Right. Um, I, on the other hand, yes. watched Del's Bergeres, and then I went to the video store, and I got Kubrick's, and I watched that, and then it was So you got the, the loop. Mm-hmm. Yes. And so, so Elizabeth, then, uh, um, what do you think is drawing um, Del's Bergeres to uh, Kubrick? I think the fact that it is um, a movie that's kind of about sex roles. Right. But the Fassbinder is, is, the Fassbinder is explicitly about transgender, and there's a transgendered element, fundamental transgendered element, in uh, Del Spergier's project. Um, now, there's role-playing, and there's... Um, but it's, it's, a, it's a fairly strictly heterosexual um, and... Uh, within your given biological identity kind of role-playing in, in Kubrick slash Schindler, right? Yeah, and I think that for that, it's also, I think, very much about Cruz trying to prove that he's a man. And so I think, you know, having an actor who is trying to be both is kind of really taking a stab at those conventional sex roles. But what's funny is that in a, in a strange sense, and I'm not sure I'm going to be able to articulate this, in a sense, I don't think it is directly about gender identity. That is, it so thoroughly breaks down any notions of yeah. gender, having this uh-huh. strange figure wearing breasts inappropriately often. That is, he wears breasts, mm. fake right. breasts, when he's, when he's playing a male figure, yeah. that somehow or other the notion, the issues of, ge- of gender, which are in Kubrick, I think, mostly cliche-ridden and, and annoying... Mm-hmm sort of yes. break down. So in that sense, of course, it's about gender identity, but there's something interesting about actually not playing into any of the cliches, dissolving them into this kind of a, a, a unified field of gender that interests me. Um, so in, in, I don't think in a 90s sense it is about gender. It seems to be more interesting, more complex than that for me. There, weren't, there wasn't a simple take-home message, a kind of yeah. a finger-wagging message about what we have to think about gender. It was way too fucked up for that, it seemed to me. Well, I think it turned the whole... Um interaction between people into an interaction among selves, you know, and that's very spooky, I think. Yeah. Right. Um. I mean, in a way, you could argue that it's a uh, it's a kind of celebratory of the possibility of, gender, of genderlessness. Yeah. That uh-huh. is, I didn't read it necessarily as cells, yeah. though I probably should have, but the fact that all of those relationships somehow survive being treated by a single large man with piercings and breasts may, somehow act, made me think that those, uh, the relationships were independent of gender somehow, that there was, some, there was some core of narrative there, as I've said 18 times already tonight. No, yes, it's um, worth saying. Say it again. That, that survives the, the kind of superficial things that Kubrick seems to be getting at, some of them pretty heavy-handed. Mm-hmm. Somehow or other, there's something underneath that that survives that has to do maybe with all of cinema that isn't just about the Kubrick movie. Yes. What it seemed to me, actually, um, uh, I may have given the impression I didn't like it much, but unlike Carol, I don't say I loathe it, actually. And there was something I found quite... Um, uh, there was a, the, the, the masquerade I found a little enticing. And um, I think what I um, came away with is a somewhat a sensation of... This is of um, a classic tale retold in a kind of... Um, either vaudeville or burlesque or uh, traveling players or 
perhaps a little bit the Commedia dell'arte, where yeah. you have some this very soiled, tired, sad troupe taking this sort of exquisite tale around the provinces. And there, yes, do you get that last little uh, drop of whatever is profound in the original. Or even Shakespeare at the, at the original Globe, right? If you imagine all these young men playing the, playing the female characters, you imagine they were pretty pretty scrappy performances, and yet you also imagine that Shakespeare somehow came through that, that surface. Well, Shakespeare was evidently happy, so um, <laughs> we don't have any records. Oh, that's probably yes. the opposite. When, when is a playwright ever happy with a performance? Yes. <laughs> Can I put in a disagreement that I really think that most art is about other art? And I that was going to say the same yes, thing. I, yeah. Yes, that shouldn't and, go on to And that, Thank um, you. you know, that redoing older art is... Fabulous, you know. It's well, the, the canon would be yeah, rather yeah, thin if that, about it. If and Carol's also, you know, the reflections between different This is a, this is a very, things. very obvious thing where you're making comparisons. You know, when you look at when you look at Jeremy Gilbert Wolf, as we will, you can look at a painting and you can say, oh, you know, he saw Diebenkorn, but it's his painting. It's not. He's not taking a Diebenkorn and reworking a Diebenkorn. It's his painting. And there's a big... There's a but what about it's when funny. Manet literally redoes a Velasquez? Or what yeah, about when exactly. Picasso literally does And this, that's not what's happening Picasso. here at all. Oh. I mean, the difference between the original and the, the, yeah. the new one is so profound that I don't think you can talk about it in terms of... I mean, it's much further than, than Manet and Velasquez. Well, part of it you know. was, of course, that I, the whole thing just upset me because I felt like this is so mannered, it's so artificial, it's so dated... I mean, Fassbinder was a, dealt with these issues a long time ago when they were really new. If you look at <laughs> Ali Fear Eats the Soul, for instance, that movie I saw when I was very young, and it was, it was a whole new world to me. It was shocking. It's, it's not, I mean, since then I've been, you know, through the Pyramid Club in the 80s. So by the time we get to now, I'm like, what are, why are we dealing with this? What, what is well, it? Well, the, the suggestion from Blake is we're not that the, this isn't what's specifically being dealt with because, um, uh, as you say, Fassbinder is dealing with the issue of transgender. And Blake has put the idea that this is just beyond that. It can't, yeah. it, it, it can't be reduced to that. Therefore, but, but on the other hand, Blake and Elizabeth, um, we can't pretend... I mean, it's not there. Yes, you say it may be completely screwed up and, and that it's not a simple binary this is my position, this is normality, this is beyond normality. Um, uh, is it, uh, because after all, it's not, it's not Del Speja himself who is, um, it's a, a performer that Del Speja is using, so it's not as if Del Speja is getting something out of his system with it, is that, it? I think that's well, right, which is important that. as well. I don't know anything about his sexuality, but I think it's important to imagine him as I don't know, I like to imagine him as a macho man, you know, sort of football player directing this other character to do these things. I saw a video of him on YouTube, and he's, he's about as macho, or no, he's, he's, he's your par, I'd say. In oh, yeah. um, I don't know how to which take is, that at is, all. That's is, not, wildly, you know. not wildly yeah. macho, or is that what not, not, uh, Well, not wildly, but not wildly, but neither, I don't think he, he didn't really go in one way or the other. He just seemed like a man, you know, just a, a chap. Well, just yeah, a regular, right. a regular, a regular, you know. <clears throat> Indeed. I should say you or me, you know, just to set the norm, the, the, the average uh, 
in, in terms of testosterone or whatever it is that uh, we're, we're using as our barometer. I think we the subject. I think we're getting in trouble here. When, they, when someone starts discussing my quantity of testosterone, I get nervous. Oh, well, that's what we're here for. That is the review panel. No one's really interested in art. We just really want to know the new art critic for Newsweek. What sort of testosterone does he have? Yes. I think Those artists books. have to be able to approach something that's been approached before yes. in their own way. Doesn't it you know, free? I mean, yes. It also feels, I mean, the one thing I can say about this is I've never seen anything like it. I mean, to say that it's revisiting, mm. I've never seen anything, it struck me as entirely strange and refreshingly difficult to deal with. I mean, really quite, uh, I mean, maybe I just haven't seen enough, but I thought I've seen a fair amount of video. I mean, is there anyone who has seen something, a giant transgestured, just transgendered man wearing breasts redoing Stanley Kubrick? Is that a, is that a whole genre that I've missed somehow? <laughs> Clearly, one can get specific like that, but what is Carol? But no, I meant in general. Carol, well, do you feel you've seen things very much like this? Well, you know, when you've been to a lot of drag performances, when you've been through that whole pyramid scene, it feels like that was real. That was the times. This is so. But this is artificial. different. Yeah, it's so, it is. Well, it's not. I don't think in a good way. It didn't. Uh-huh. There was nothing about it that compelled me. There was nothing about it. And when you talk about relationships, it was artificial relationships. It was all so mannered. If you talk about Shakespeare, those relationships are real. You feel those relationships. You are there, even though it was centuries ago, even no matter what the characters were wearing, those relationships are like relationships you have had. There was nothing in this to relate to. But is that what we're looking for in 21st century art? I mean, I've been dancing with a man who's not my husband, but I didn't relate to that at all. Hmm. Hmm. I can't say I related to it. I'm, I'm just be very clear. Um. <laughs> what what carried across to me is that the the, uh, the be all and end all was the the oddity of the situation. I yeah. mean, because it's a sort of it, it's a funny also uh, it, it occupied a funny kind of budgetary space in that it was clearly quite an involved production. If you look at the credits at the end of the uh, Kubrick. Um, uh, a huge number of people and personnel and skills can come to bear in this. Uh, but at the same time, it's, for most of us, I think, a reworking of, of a movie we have seen, which itself was probably one of the most laboured and mannered and labour-intensive um, uh, productions of its kind. It's like a two- or three-hour movie, whatever. And um, so, therefore, it's actually a very sort of tacky, low-budget slightly naff, slightly silly reworking of something. But that uh, was a nice theatre. It was a nice setting. Yes, as I say, it was, so it's, a, it's kind right, of middle... It's not, it's not, it doesn't ignore production values entirely. It's, it doesn't, it's strangely no. in between. That's right. It's, yeah. That's what I'm saying. Yes, yeah, absolutely. Yes. So, but being str- strangely in between sounds, um, sounds like a, an aesthetic or cultural achievement, whereas... Um, if it's in between, it can also mean it neither exploits its high production values nor makes a virtue out of its low production values. It's just sort of in a funny no space as far as production values are concerned. Hmm. That funny no space sounds a kind of interesting place to be. But... Well, then, then, then it looks like then we're then then you're in heaven because nothing can ever be boring, nothing can ever be a failure. <laughs> we'll see about that when we go on to some other pieces okay. tonight. Well, let's actually go on to Tracy Moffat, and I think that uh, it's a rather uh, serendipitous pairing um, in that obviously uh, both are in their ways uh, revisiting um, the the cinematic given uh, and doing so through 
a a um, a structural lens, gender and transgender in the case of Delsberger, uh, and a degree uh, of post-colonial in the in the case of Tracy um, Moffat. Um, Blake, start us off with Tracy Moffat. Do you, do you are you familiar with her work in the past, and does 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 her work of recent years seem, as it does to me, um, a little less harsh and indignant and a little more lyrical? I, li- I like harsh and indignant, so I don't know. Um, uh, well, I mean, the other, the, the Montage series has been going on for a long time now. In fact, it's finished, so that, in fact, spans a good chunk of her career. I mean, well, f- recent, yeah, recent career, yes. Relatively recent career. Um, uh, and I like the Montage. I guess I like the video better than the other pieces. Mm-hmm. Um, I mean, I think, unless I'm misremembering, I think the first piece that she did that got a lot of attention was where she simply followed a bunch of um, surfers in Australia getting undressed with a camera. It's that a beautiful wasn't the first, I don't think. But it's an early really, piece. It an early it's an early piece, piece yeah. which is quite different because it was just her, you know, an attractive young woman with a camera just trying to photograph basically the genitals of surfers as they're changing into and out of their bathing suits. And there was something really aggressive and un. Uh, very direct about it, which I really liked. And she certainly moved away from that um, in, in these pieces, which do risk becoming arty and, and a little precious, I think. But I did like the, I thought other, it's in a genre now. I've seen a lot of similar works. I think we all have of the, you know, what it is is seven minutes of, we should just explain it because not mm-hmm. everyone has seen it. It's seven, seven minutes of scenes of encounters between civ- the civilized West and the primitive other. Um, out of Hollywood movies, just one after another after another. I would say most of them are yeah, just a few it, seconds long. And then it long. goes into uh, sex. And then it goes into sex, into usually sex. involving... Interracial sex. Sometimes only interracial, which is interesting. Sometimes intercultural, uh, but sometimes yeah. just a black yeah, person and a, and, a, um, and a white person. I like the fact that she collapsed the categories of uh, Western and other and collapsed it down to just racial differences, which of course is something very different. Um, so I like that. I thought that the building towards orgasm was a little obvious. I didn't. I didn't oh, you quite thought the volcano that. metaphor was strange. <laughs> I thought it was. I thought it was. I'd seen it once or twice before, uh-huh. um, and I didn't think she needed that. I thought it could have been much more direct. Yes. I mean, that's what Chris, what Christian Markley does, of course, who's got this wonderful piece called Clock right now. Mm. Um, does anyone here remember? I recently came across an incredibly early example of this kind of montage work. And I just can't remember where I saw it. What, what's the earliest example anyone can think of? You mean historically? Historically. Lam Jun Paik. No, no, it must go back to... Um, no, I mean this montage that is specifically taking a theme and, and collaging all of Hollywood. Well, uh, of course, um, Moffat herself does it with, with, in the piece called Lip, where yes. she has um, servants who answer back to their domineering mistresses. But I mean, I think there's some examples from the 60s. So I think we're looking at a fairly old genre that tends to limit what the artist can mm-hmm. do. I've seen a lot that are very similar, and I enjoy them every time. Mm-hmm. But they seem to do the same work of demonstrating once again the way Hollywood, I mean, Christian Markley's done a bunch of them, demonstrating what Hollywood thinks about a given issue. Right. right. Well, well, Carol, I mean, I had a curious thing. When I went into, as I say, I've seen um, Eyes Wide Shut some number of times, not out of an admiration for the movie, but for one of its performers. And um, I had the sensation of coming in and seeing that thing, film, thinking, this narrative is vaguely, this dialogue is vaguely familiar. <laughs> Have I seen this? And it took me about... I came in on the scene where uh, Tom Cruise's character is talking to the uh, woman whose father has just passed away, who's infatuated yeah. by him. Um, and it, it took the whole scene from it, the penny, to finally drop. And I thought, my God, this is, 
eyes wide shut. Um, whereas with Moffat, it was um, a real kind of test of movie connoisseurship. Mm-hmm. I thought, ah, I'm going to watch this. I'm going to watch this for the thirteenth time because I can get more of them right this right. time. It was like doing those wonderful end of year quizzes that you get in some magazines, which test your knowledge of the year and politics and culture. And All right, well, I'll come off as the curmudgeon of the panel. No, really. Not yes. So far. I thought it was, I mean, I like the gallery, I like the, the premise, but that piece I felt was cliched. I felt it was not well edited. Um, it had music over it that was like movie music. I spent a couple of hours in Christian Markley's piece, and to go and see this other piece was just like wrenching me out of something sublime and making me go look at something totally klutzy. And I rushed right back to the Christian Markley. How many people have seen the clock? Has anybody the Christian seen Markley. it? I mean... It's the, open till tomorrow morning. You can go at, yes, at 3 a.m. if you want to. But the, the, can I talk about the Please clock for a second? Do. Because it's related. Give us the context, yeah. Um, Markley's editing is so sublime. He takes each clip... And they roll into each other. They're, you know, you'll hear the sound from one before the, the picture comes up. And then that'll bleed into the next one. And the visuals bleed into each other. And it's so, his editing is so exquisite. And he keeps you on the edge of your chair. No matter how long you sit there, you just want to see more and more and more. So I, I really feel it's a tour de force. It's, a, it's an absolute masterpiece. I felt this way about um, Markley in the past, enough to devote a feature article to Video Quartet. And then when he did Video Quartet, I thought, this is it. It can't get any better than this, except that he's taken this you know, 24-hour project, and he's, it's even better. It's, it's just fabulous. So... The Tracy Moffat, by comparison, was just... I think it's fair, though. I mean, I think that, that Markley is in some sense a formalist, and you could argue that Tracy Moffat doesn't need to be any better than she is. In fact, she needs to be a little worse. That is, I think there's the, the editing there's, is too fancy, and the music certainly is too fancy, and she does too much. She plays too much. Um, if she had just presented the clips, I think it would have been more successful. But she's not trying to be a great editor, and the piece is a, has... Is a, is a collection, a conjuries of, uh, of pieces that address a, a, a thesis, not a thesis, but an issue. But didn't you right? know from the very beginning what was going to happen? Didn't you yes. know every single Absolutely. scene that happened was totally predictable? But early Christian Markley are exactly the same. When he does the same exact thing, when he does the telephone answering, he did a whole series of things in exactly oh, yeah. the same mode. Oh, him. Exactly oh. the same mode, except you are never expecting what comes next. He always comes from a very oblique, unexpected place. And that's what makes it fun, and that's what makes it compelling. But um, I don't it, there's a, there's, it's, uh, it's good to bring in another piece in order to give us um, some sense of a scale of values, but uh, clearly different artists and different works have different intentions. So let's, let's, try to, let's, let's go back to Moffat. And um, uh, Elizabeth, I haven't really heard from you yet on, on Moffat. I enjoyed the show. I really don't know that much about her work. Um, I have the feeling that this was a minor show for her, but I thought that, first of all, I love all those exotic costume movies in, from the past. I, t- 
totally enjoyed sitting there watching all those clips. I enjoyed that the production values were bad. I kind of, you know, it looked like it was filmed. It, it, it was... It was tacky. I loved it. Um, I liked the photographs. I liked the way they were hand-colored. The texture was very interesting. You know, the, the sense of um, them being like old photographs. But I think that her earlier work sounds a lot more interesting to me. I mean, I think another movie, a very early movie she made, was about following um, four young Aborigine girls mm-hmm. around, you know, and just exploring their lives and and then there were a, a, there's a full length mu- movie that I read about I just I would like to see it I'm sorry I've missed what she's done before okay good well um let's take some comments and feedback from the audience now on both the shows we've we've been talking about Delsberger and um and and Moffat um and uh, Karen is going to come around with a roving mic do do please wait even if you think you have powerful oratorical projection because um, we are recording it and um, you never know who can't hear you. So, anybody bursting to say something on, on, on any of the shows we've been talking about so far? Um, and I may be sitting... Uh, yes, lady. There. Um, with the first film, I felt like it was more about the construction of gender, the artificialness, the manufactured... Just because now that we have so much, um, I guess, whether it's plastic surgery or, um, or the ability to change your own gender, that that's what it touched on for me, more than like an identity or, um, or maybe an absence of identity, if, you, if that makes sense. Um, and uh, for the second one, I think the tackiness of it like hit me just because the films I thought were tacky. Right. You know, so the costumes, the idea of otherness, like, because sometimes I, even I forget when I'm watching a film that this otherness is like really an other that identifies with somebody, you know, that um, is not entirely true, you know? And it, it comes back to, I think, when we talked to, um, I had seen this, uh, clip, it was on TED Talks, right? And it was um, talking about the single story and the danger of the single story and how like oftentimes the stereotypes, it's not really the stereotypes themselves, but the access to one type of stereotypes. And so I just found both of them really amazing. Excellent, thank you very much. Great. Yes. Um, when when uh, Carol, you were, s- uh, the question was up about whether anyone had seen anything that was like the first movie, and uh, there seemed to be like a void, like he had done something so completely new. But it looked to me just like uh, Cindy Sherman's photo series of with mm-hmm. all the artificial right. limbs That's that was cool. at least 20 years ago or mm-hmm. so. It didn't feel much like that, though. It really didn't, because partly because of the narrativity of it. It, it was very tight. I mean, it, and it didn't feel, it didn't feel surrealist, weirdly. Um, it felt like a normal movie produced on another planet. It almost felt like if, if, if Kubrick had lived on a planet where there was only one sex and they were heavily pierced and weighed a lot and had false breasts, this would be the movie. So it didn't have that quality of... It didn't feel at all like Matthew Barney, for instance. It didn't feel like a concatenation of strangenesses. It made me think of Bruce Conner. Um, the dolls and the plastic parts. 
Okay. But it did feel, it seemed to me to feel different from those. Mm-hmm. Great. Um, yeah. Yes. Gentleman here. Okay. Uh, David, just picking up on one thing you were talking about in terms of the videos in general and how much they cost to make, mm-hmm. um, I do think it's worth mentioning. I mean, it is extraordinarily difficult for uh, artists like Dels Berger to even make these things to begin with. You see the credits at the end, and there's hordes of people who are working uh, as yes. um, volunteers, and they have to go begging yeah. to foundations mm-hmm. and collectors who often get an AP or something like that, but they aren't typically very uh, commercially viable projects, shall we say. Um, so I'm sure Carol would think, well, it's much ado about nothing, but I do think it is worth mentioning uh, the amount of uh, effort it took to actually make the thing. Well, I just feel that if you're going to put that much effort into it, then it's even more important that the result be really have a lot of importance and impact. Well, my feeling is um, I'm happy to give out brownie points for effort, but the point is that um, um, for me, it's, it's uh, any artist, whether they're working with um, matchsticks or making a million-dollar movie, um, the, the, to some extent, the medium is the message. And uh, so um, there's the most exquisite works of art made on ridiculously pathetic budgets that actually make a virtue out of the flimsiness or else... Um, are so ingenious that you don't know that it's a small budget, and it seems to be incredibly well-crafted. And what I was saying is that this was this bizarre middle between those two. It was neither uh, neither that good nor that not or that you know it was it, it wasn't that well-crafted, but it wasn't knowingly, cleverly, amusingly badly crafted either. So but that's... couldn't you say it was just well enough crafted? Isn't that the ideal in a sense, that something is as well crafted as it needs to be? And it seemed to me that this well, then did it's... the work it needed to do and didn't, didn't mm-hmm. do more than that for the sake of craft or so little that it, it couldn't do its job. Well, I'm thinking of a film that I like very much, um, Brother from Another Planet. Uh, Has anybody seen Brother from Another Planet? Yeah, John Sayles. Mm -hmm. And that was a very, very low-budget film, Mm -hmm. and he managed to um, make it extremely spooky Mm -hmm. without any special effects, without any anything. I mean, it's a totally weird, wonderful movie that actually touches on a lot of these issues of race and so on, but it's, uh, yeah, it's... It was done very probably for a lot less money than this one, comparatively. If you see a movie like Blood Simple, the, the Coen Brothers, I think their first movie, done on a very, very tight budget, uh, it actually makes creative use out of what are limitations of cinematography. And then if you see um, a video like... Um, um, uh, uh, what am I doing with names this evening? Um, uh, Eva, Eva Sussman, um, the Velazquez uh, reworkings... Um, it, it doesn't matter whether she had a lot of money or not. She's just such a consummate craftsperson that uh, she gets the absolute maximum that can be had from that um, material to give a kind of absolutely extraordinary kind of seamlessness to what's going on. So those are two examples of what to do on a low budget, what to do on never mind the budget, just using craft. So that's what that's that's basically the point I'm making. But and then there you know there are all kinds of. I'm not a great fan of Warhol movies, but clearly part of their intrinsic part of their aesthetic is the whole um, um, flimsiness of just using um, the, the materials that it does to get across the sensations and the, the cultural connections that it does by, by using those materials in those ways. 
that, that was my point. Yes, please. And then... I, I have to um, agree with Carol, I, I think, about the Tracy Moffat film. I didn't find that I was caught by it at all. In fact, it seemed a lot like these, the stuff they show on the Academy Awards, um, the little clips. But, you know, in the, in the front of it was saying, oh, you know, there's Marlon Brando and kind of seeing... I thought some of the themes that were brought up in the discussion, like the idea of the tackiness of, of those period pieces, um, would have been would have been great. I didn't think that that was exploited enough. I think that would be a really great film to to have that angle. And I and I'm also sort of mystified by the. I didn't know she meant it to be funny. The the um, explosions. I kind of was waiting for the train going into the tunnel. It just it seemed totally you know predictable and cliched. Cliche, and maybe she, she meant it for some reason that, yes. to be that. Yeah, but I mean, it, I think I agree with you about that particular aspect of it. I thought it didn't need to do that. The, the whole sexual thing seemed a little obvious, and the music mm-hmm. certainly. And I thought the music was so over the top that it, it must have been intentionally course, Hollywoodized, yes. you know, as, as maybe was the imagery as well. Yes, yes. I, I asked at the desk, I said, can we get the Netflix list from this movie? Because, I mean, it, it, that seems to be the natural spin-off, that having seen the video... Now the reward is that you can just have a whole three or four well, months of ordering those movies though. from uh, one by one and see that you know. I, I'm surprised it missed. It's really um, hard to make fun of tacky movies. Mm, unless you make another but, one. Wait a minute. Let's <laughs> let's. Yeah, let's I don't think that that's. I mean, there was a very particular issue being addressed here, which is the treatment in the West of encounters right. with the other. It's this not. wasn't just a collection of miscellaneous tacky. It wasn't even just a collection of miscellaneous tackinesses about the other. It was very specifically encounters between white people and and. But that goes back to Tarzan. It does, and she uses Tarzan. I mean, right? you know... No, but, but I mean, but, it's... But, but Carol, it goes back to, but it, as the issues haven't been resolved, surely an artist who is herself of color would want to I carry on with I think as they go on, they have to be dealt with then in a deeper and deeper and deeper way, and not on a, not on a superficial level. Well, yeah, uh, it I wasn't mean, hugely profound. if it's a really profound. old issue, then we have to go very deeply into it and really deal with it in a contemporary way, not still... I think she has in her previous work. Mm-hmm. I mean, I, I don't think I mean, this was a great work, but I thought of its kind, it did the same work that all the pieces like this do, which is a nice little summary of reminding us of these tropes in our culture and how, how silly and evil they are, and it did a perfectly adequate job of that for me. For me, the message is colonialism is bad. Yeah, that's... Actually, well, I safe. thought it was more mixed because I think, first of all, it's interesting to note that she is actually a product. She's half Aborigine and half... Australian Anglo-Irish and you know I think it was a real um, exploration of the attraction between people who are different from each other sexuality yeah I I also don't want to judge a piece by the backstory I think that's not not the way art in general should be judged by the backstory. It, it stands on why? its own. Why? Why can't the backstory be part of the work? Why is because there a, a decision that it can't be? Because I want the work to be the work. Why? And why can't you put the whole story in the work? Why do you have to know? Why do you have to know that this person is of this background? You know, what difference does it make? It makes a difference because, in fact, once we know it, we read the work differently. Well, why can't that be no, just literally no, part of the work? Why can't that be in the work? Why, why well, doesn't that Now we've to, been told that biographical information. Can't we see, in fact, that it is in the work? Exactly. So it's circular. Yeah. 
That in fact, and being told, you could argue that the wall text in a case like this, that is the, the backstory, is in fact part of the work. That the fact that it's not on the wall with the work doesn't mean that it isn't part of the work. And you could argue that that's in fact the case with all art. That in fact there is a backstory to every work. There's a backstory to Christian work in the 16th well, of century. Of course, there's a backstory to also, every work. Also, but also, I want to have an experience with mm-hmm. the artwork that is not dependent on me knowing what the gender, what the background, what the whatever is. Well, I, I think just, we all want that experience, but nonetheless, Carol. When I surely... listen, when I listen to music, I do not need to know that this person is where they're from, what sex they are, who they're having sex with, what color they are. How much I testosterone am in the music. Have? I am having that experience. I don't need it, and I don't need it anymore with art. But I think that you, you can have both things. Why do we have to decide that, that art has to not have it or have it? It seems to me some works of art can, be, can have the backstory as part of the work, and others don't. don't if you're, if you're listening to Schubert's Winterizer, you sense mortality. You're staring it in the face. If somebody then says to you, the 36-year-old composer has syphilis and he's about to die, it may enrich your experience. But you don't sometimes go around saying, oh, you've corrupted my whole experience of Winterizer by, by telling me that. But you know, I never knew that. And, and, and Schubert's work has been really, really important to me without knowing that. You know, like... Well, I hope I haven't ruined it for you. But let's... <laughs> I, <laughs> actually, can we talk for a minute actually, about no, these? Because, about the, because yes, when I yes. listen to Death and the Maiden, I do not want to think about Schubert and his syphilis. I want to be in <laughs> that music without the other, you know, the, in the total experience. I love to think about Schubert syphilis. It's one of my favorite, my favorite thoughts, and his depilation too. I have, a, you know, we know a lot about pubic depilation and Schubert, especially. He kept he kept depilation journals. People don't know about that very much. But um, to change the subject, shall we talk about these the images, the still we, images? Do yes. we have time, or should we, we move on? We have a we have a we have a. A journalistic moment? Yes. A journalistic moment. Because it seemed to me that we did neglect those, and um, I neglected them in looking at them because I didn't think they were that interesting. But tell me something interesting about them, Blake. Well, I had a really weird relationship with them. Um, we're talking about the first... diorama, the sort of diora- diorama uh, double-take images. There, there, in each case, there's a diptych. One image almost always is of fields, usually on fire, sugarcane fields, and the other is of a colonial mansion, usually with a a sinister black figure lurking around the outside of the mansion. And at first, there were a lot of things about the, the works that bothered me. Um, they're on this very arty paper, and there's a, lot, there's a lot of artiness about them. They're on a heavy paper that's clearly handmade, and it turns out, in fact, that it's made in, I think, Nepal. So there's a strange quality of, well, why is Nepalese paper being used to make work about the Australian Aboriginal experience? Um, they're, they have a kind of uh, Victorian framing as though they were... Uh, uh, stereographic images. There's a whole bunch of things that struck me, and they're they're sort of col- they look almost hand colored. There's a bunch of they things in them. Yeah. They are there's some hand coloring in them. Yeah. yeah, there's a mixture, and there's a bunch of things that struck me as very arty and a little bit cliched, and they they wanted to look like art. It seemed to me, but then I had a real reversal at a certain point where it seemed to me that some of the things that was going on in them was the same thing that was going on in in the film. That is, in this case, she seemed to be inhabiting some of the cliches of what it is to make art about these issues. So all of a sudden, instead of the cliches being a problem, it seemed to me that she was becoming one of the the filmmakers that that we were laughing at in the other movie, that she was somehow uh, uh, um, inhabiting what it is to make slightly cliched art about these sets of issues. Because it did seem as though the images were full of cliches, 
But then if, if, that, if that becomes the point, if it, if it comes to be about the cliches, it struck me as more interesting. And I actually enjoyed the fact that the paper was, in a sense, culturally inappropriate and that the, there was some strange time, you know, why Victorian content particularly, et cetera, et cetera. All these things suddenly became interesting for me. Okay, excellent. May, may I address just Please? one one thing? Um, the the part about why no backstory. I want to see art that offers the opportunity for many interpretations. I want to see. I love to see something where five or six or ten different people see something different in it. When you start getting into the backstory, that's a very narrow lens through which to see the piece, and it's very difficult to see it in any other way once you know that backstory. But isn't backstory just a subset of historical context? I mean, the fact that we, you know, to know something about uh, Impressionist Paris is hugely enlightening for the work, and in fact may be necessary to really understanding the work. Isn't that just another form of backstory? Are you dismissing all of contextual art history? I, I, you know, I grew up with the Impressionists in Chicago at the Art Institute. I didn't know any of the backstory. I didn't know anything about it. I was a small child. They were mine, and later I found out about it, but they were hugely effective in, in my life, hugely important. And I, I didn't need to know about it. No, everything came through in the painting. But why does knowing more about it uh, Just take because, away from your experience? Because if you learn about it later, I think that's fine. But to put it on the wall, put it in the painting, make it part of it, then that's the lens through yes. which you see it, and it narrows the opportunities for interpretation. I think, I think there isn't quite the divide on this issue that we suppose, because um, I, I think we'd all agree, well, Carol doesn't, but the rest of us would all agree <laughs> that cultural context, historical context, biographical context can't do any harm if you're ready to have an enriched experience. But what Carol is reminding us of is that we would only need any of that context uh, in looking at, work at, at a work of art if the work of art already had a richness to warrant that extra context. Is that a fair moving forward yeah, summary? Excellent. So our two Brits of the evening, not committing the blunder of suggesting an Australian is in any way a poor man's Brit. <laughs> Not, not a thing to say on a panel with a Canadian, is it? No. So, um, we have a cardinal rule on the review panel, never to review an artist twice. And I think I may have broken it. We had an early review where the recording got lost through no fault of our wonderful Graham White. And um, um, I've actually even lost the record of what we reviewed on that fateful evening. And I suddenly realized this afternoon it was probably Cornelia Parker. But there you are. So now we will record it. I hope that doesn't jinx our recording engineer, but to know that. But um, uh, a double onus on you to get the recording right tonight so that the review panel on Cornelia Parker is saved for posterity. A project room show, uh, Carol. So we... Oh, sorry, it's not, uh, Carol, I started you on the last show. Blake. Blake, um... A one-piece show, uh, which is not a crime in itself. It allows us to focus on it. Um, how did you like her? Um, I've always liked Cornelia Parker's work, but I guess the problem is always liking Cornelia Parker's work is sort of always liking the same piece. And I do feel that this device of crushing 
uh, old silver plate has gotten, if not tired, I guess it has gotten tired, in fact. Not if not tired, it has gotten tired. I like this piece absolutely as much as I like the first one she saw, um, in exactly the same ways. I have a hard, t- I had a hard time making it do a lot for me, and I was disappointed because I was looking forward to it. Um, the one image that kept coming to mind that seemed to empower it a little bit was, in, was some notion of a pressed flower. There is a sense of the of freezing of time. There's a nostalgic quality. Mm-hmm. And there's something sort of nice about, about the, the literalizing of the notion, notion of freezing time by crushing these objects, by sort of, by, by uh, um, that's not freezing, but there's something nice about that act of, of somehow seizing them up and making them essentially into a kind of drawing as well, mm-hmm. recording. There's a recording quality in the act of them being pressed. And that, for me, still seemed to have some resonance. It, was, it had a huge amount of nostalgia, obviously. It felt very British country house. Mm-hmm. And there was some quality of capturing that. And then the way it's laid out in space is maybe one of the most winning things about it. There's a strange hover to it. And because you know these objects are hanging on strings, you expect them to be moving, and they only very occasionally move at all. So there's a nice quality of stasis there, which seemed to me a nice metaphor for sort of stasis in time as well. Mm-hmm. So I was able to make the show do some work for me, but there was a funny mm-hmm. deadness to it. I couldn't really get excited by it. Um, yes. Uh, Elizabeth, um, flatness and depth, floating ethereally and, and having substance. These, these were the formal um, characteristics I had with the work. Um, uh, does that, did that resonate with you at all? Well, I thought it was interesting that they had been crushed by something so heavy, and yet they were hovering in the air. But I have to say that I have never had any interest in Cornelia Parker. I think that her, it's almost a process that once you hear about it, you really don't need to look at it. It's pretty. Come on. It's, it's pretty. pretty. Yeah, it was pretty. No, I looked at it. I thought they were praise. pretty. You know, I liked the arabesque of the crushed candelabra, um, so forth and so on. But, you know, that kind of art is so institutional also. I mean, you know, it's, it's for a museum or a biennial, basically. Oh, no, they're collectors. She has lots She's of collectors. collectors well, yeah. But that doesn't mean her make it better by no. any means. But. Or worse. Yes. I make it worse. Is, is Elizabeth's complaint, Carol, somewhat that they're um, uh, projects, that they're sort of uh, art for um, consumption in um, uh, an art arena like uh, a biennale or well, a gallery rather you know, than a precious thing for the home or the cabinet? What are you saying? I just it think that they're completely be... thought out before they even happen. So almost why do it? No, they have material That's, qualities. Yes, but still. Carol, what, what, what do you well, say about Well, I mean, I think if someone, I mean, what about someone like uh, Robert Irwin or Terrell or, you know, people that you can't sell the work necessarily, or Smithson for that matter? I mean, you know, it's, uh, it's experiential. And I find her work actually very beautiful. I like the formal qualities of her work. Um, I've always liked... The shed, you know, looking at the shed or the... The shed the, is her best work. It's a beautiful piece. Which is the exploding, you know, she actually exploded a, a shed and then re And then put the shards on the... I love fishing wire, too, I have to yeah. say, as a, you know, like encaustic. You just have to love encaustic no matter what anyone does with it. Well, fishing wire is just one of those really attractive materials that um, is kind of hard to screw up, though it's gotten so popular that people really do screw it up. But um, hanging the shards of this blown-up shed, um, pieces of Dover chalk, 
which if you've ever felt over chalk is, would be really hard to do, <laughs> keeping it together enough even to tie it with fishing wire. Um, she's done the falling towers and sinking ships was her piece with um, little lead replicas of Empire State Buildings made out of bullet lead, mm-hmm. and they're, they're pointing down, so they're like um, projectiles, like implements of war, all these, this whole thing of little Empire State Buildings. So, uh, Carol, you're not, there's not a danger in celebrating the early work of giving us a backstory, is there? <laughs> <laughs> well, it sets up a certain expectation, which I have to okay. say is is a disappointment in this case because this looks almost exactly like her last show in the same gallery in, what was it, 2008 Mm -hmm. um, with the same title. It's like she got the steamroller and she thought, wow, I've really got a good thing going and, you know, has been steamrollering ever since. So the kind of inventiveness Mm -hmm. that I just loved and actually even a lot of the formal qualities that I loved about the earlier work... um, are not are not so present here. I mean, I like the light, I like the shadow, I like seeing through these things, I like the almost imperceptible movement, but mm-hmm. if I hadn't seen it, my day would not be any okay. better or worse. I think there's a lesson that I have to learn as moderator of this panel, and is that uh, I made this mistake in the past. It's, it's a little unfair to home in on an artist's... Um, an artist, I mean, it shouldn't be, but it, it, at a certain level, it is unfair to home in on a single piece in what is like a project room display. Oh, no, because, I think that's a good test. But, I mean, it's, it's, it's a good test, but um, it's not the same test that's applied to everybody. In, in the, when we look at, uh, although in, in fairness, actually, to correct myself on that, in the previous two <laughs> shows, we did actually look at in great depth at one piece from each show. So uh, here we have no choice but to do what we did anyway with... I mean, ideally, that's the best way to look at artists, to just spend mm-hmm. a whole lot of time with one piece. So this should have been... Yes, it should have been. Had it been great work, we would have... It would have carried, its, yeah. uh, carried the day, yes. Well, I think if there was a lot going on in the work, the fact that it was similar to the one in the past wouldn't matter so much. Yes. I, I'm surprised... I, I I'm very surprised, though, by Elizabeth, um, oh. by your response, because um, the, the complaint you're making um, is, to my mind, um, a very valid complaint to make about um, almost the majority of artworks in the post-dematerialization sort of conceptual, neoconceptual um, art world, and yet um, it's, it's odd to pick on Cornelia Parker to sure. uh, be the martyr, as it were, for why bother reifying it, when in fact the work's materiality and physical presence is, is, is quite crucial. And um, one couldn't actually, for instance, a soul the wit, you have written instructions and then those instructions are made and then you can debate about the space between the written instructions and the maidenness but I don't see I wouldn't get anything from a written set of instructions to go with Cornelia Parker's piece one has to see the thing and there's it seems to me there's a lot to savor once I mean maybe it's not so much that that it's an instruction set piece, but it's that it's a shtick, which means that each yeah. piece ends up being the same. So you have to do it once. The question is, do you want to do it again and again? And, That's what and Carol it is getting possible. At. I don't even do have things. to do it once. Really? You, you think I, that you could really imagine what you could would imagine happen? without it doing once? You'd have to do it. Oh, once, I guess surely? I must have seen that um, mm. that burned up church. You know, her first one and the shed. Yeah, and um, that was enough. Mm-hmm. Okay, but uh, it seems. But would you say the same of? Um, uh, um, Monjan's neoplasticism no. or Alexander Calder's mobiles? No. 
No. Or even Fred Roth, Sandback. Roscoe's, Roscoe's lozenges. No. Fred Sandback's string. So um, it can't be per se having a shtick, as, as Blake puts it. It must be something wrong with the shtick per se. I mean, the, the yeah. shtick itself. <laughs> not, well, what not makes, itself. makes it a shtick is the is not a problem. It's that the shtick yeah, yes. in this case doesn't stick. Shtick. Shtick, 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 shtick. Okay, Jeremy Gilbert Rolfe and our last, uh, is our last show uh, for the evening. Um, a painter that I've written admiringly of in the past. Um, a free painting exhibition um, that frankly left me a little flummoxed. Uh, there was stuff to look at and to enjoy and to think about, uh, which did not surprise me because he's one of the... Uh, Great thinkers about painting. I think he's one, or he's one of the, he's one of that group of um, serious painters who are uh, at least equal as um, uh, committed theorists and, and writers on art. And while I can't claim to love his theories or his writing about art, um, they're always compelling and entertaining and infuriating. Um, and so he's, I think, a welcome addition to. Uh, the literature of art, but, um, well, three very different paintings almost seeming to be making some sort of conceptual point about the different possible approaches to painting, and yet not coming across as being an essay about painting. And I usually, well, I I like, I I have no problem... In, uh, inherently with um, a painting reminding me of other paintings. In fact, I'm usually rather suspicious of painting if it doesn't remind me of other painting. Painting is preeminently um, a medium that is uh, within its own discourse. Um, but I found myself being reminded of rather minor painting without it actually seemed to being, be being about minor painting. I mean, um, I, I, I found myself with the, what I thought was the strongest individual work in the show, which was the one called uh, Some Difference from 1986. Wow. So that's unfortunately a very early work. But um, that work from a uh, you know, quarter century ago um, uh, looked painfully like a late Ben Nicholson, which is a painful thing to look like. <laughs> Ooh. I like but somebody, somebody prove me wrong. Somebody take issue, um, please. Who'd like to take issue? Um, uh, Blake. No, I only want to take issue with him, um, with the, the work. I mean, it's funny because ev- everything that Carol said about, um, about um, our, uh, our French friend, um, Brice, um, it, I, if you just replaced the names, I would have felt exactly the same way. It seemed this, the work I looked at it possibly for 37 minutes, though I doubt I looked quite that long, and it, it left me so incredibly disappointed in the entire project of art. I felt if this is as ambitious as art can get, then we're in serious trouble. I, find it, I found it almost impossible to imagine explaining to my readers why they should support museums if this is as important as art can get in the 21st century. It seemed to be... Um, uh, it seemed like playing with paint to me. It seemed like fiddling about 
and very late in the day with, with color and form, with such strong ties to fiddling about that, that was done 50, 75 years ago that I just couldn't imagine that we need a neo-Rayanism in the 21st century. It left me uh, quite depressed, actually, seeing the show. Ooh, key. <laughs> but other than that, I loved it. Carol. <laughs> All right, Carol, beat that. Well, um, I found, I've, I've been very attracted to his paintings in the past, and uh, I wouldn't say that I think they're the most important paintings in the world, but... I think that there's a lot very satisfying stuff that goes on in these paintings. And I had three very different experiences with the three paintings. The first painting, the 1986 painting, was the one I liked the most. I felt that there was a lot going on in there. It was bold. It was authentic. But what I could see in it was that it came out of the process of painting. I felt that it was something that evolved as the artist was working. And each thing was really considered as part of the process. This is just the feeling I had about it. And when you look at work like that, you also discover new things as you look at it, and you sort of move around it and appreciate certain little things. Whereas the second painting um, looked like something that he could have planned out and then reproduced. Is this the one with the strong grid? The strong grid. And I really like grids, too, the way I like encaustic and... um, fishing wire, but uh, it, it felt like something too, too planned out, not about the process of painting. Mm-hmm. And really, it's the process of painting that I really like to look at. Especially perhaps coming, if you did, from, um, from, from seeing Jennifer Bartlett at Pace, mm-hmm. where you know, that's really taking the grid for a walk. Mm-hmm. And, and um, I, like that too. I know there's a third painting, but can we come back to it um, once we've heard from Elizabeth? Sure. Elizabeth, what did you make of... Um, Mr. Gilbert Rolfe. Well, what I did this afternoon before I went to see the show was that I went online and I read a lot of his writing. And I think he's brilliant. Um, I don't necessarily agree with him, but he's very witty. But a lot of times I found that when I got to the end of the sentence, I had to start all over again because there were so many clauses. And this is kind of how I felt about his painting, that he was trying to throw everything into this one big painting, and it was just too much. Um, but I do have a wonderful se- sentence, or a wonderful, to get a feeling of his writing, I think it would be nice to read this. The best Burkean analysis of the sublime as a quality set in motion in almost entirely traditional terms in a contemporary work of art is Dave Hickey's discussion of Robert Maplethorpe in that it shows the logic of redemption on which that idea depends, literally disappearing up a male asshole. (laughs) Right. Uh, are we sure that's the Cant- are we sure that's the Burkean sublime and not the Canton sublime? I have that's no the only, clue. That's the only question I would raise in in relation to that very useful perception. Okay, um, Elizabeth, did you want to? Talk, uh, Carol, did you particularly want to address the third? Well, yeah, I did. The uh, yes. I agree now, with can you tell the us? The asshole of the sublime are we addressing now? I want to get this very clear. Um, we're we're going from the asshole via the sublime to. Jeremy Gilbert Rolfe, in collaboration with Rebecca Norton, painting for New York 2010. What's the. I, I haven't done my homework. I haven't got the backstory, and I'm feeling stupid now. Uh, panelist, a panelist, 
give me do we do any of us know the backstory to why um, this painting for New York is required to, uh, a second uh, required Rebecca Norton? It's supposedly a collaboration, I think, with a graduate student. Yeah, he likes to work with young people. In the so. theory that the two styles, they, each yes. artist loses right. their own style and achieves okay. a, a third style. Um, Assuming they did start with a style. Okay, good. Carol, tell us about New York. Well, this painting didn't work for me. Um, I felt it lacked punch. It looked unfinished and not in a good way. Sometimes paintings can look unfinished in a good way. This didn't. It felt tentative. It felt washy. And um, one thing that really annoys me is that the support was not square. <laughs> and I'm sorry, you know, this is a small thing. And, and my students used to say I was so incredibly picky about this. But, you know, we're professionals here. And if you can't get a painting to sit flat on the wall, that's like the most basic thing. So when a painting is like not square... No. It looks by, like... By, let's just be clear. We know that it's not square and that it's 38 and 5 eighths no, by 40. Uh, you mean the, you mean the frame is... Yeah. You mean it's skewed, the frame is skewed. And, and I feel my warped. sense of it, I was sort of psychoanalyzing this painting, was that instead of inspiring each other to some kind of abandon, it looked as if they were both overly concerned about what the other one was going to do, so they tamped themselves down. It wasn't Basquiat Warhol then? No. It was a dull painting. Okay, um, I feel it would be inhumane to go further with this show. <laughs> but uh, I'd love to hear the response of, um, of our audience, either to um, Gilbert Rolfe or to, uh, uh, to, to uh, Cornelia Parker, or if you uh, had suppressed a desire to say something earlier about Delsperger or about uh, Moffat, or about the Birkins Sublime, or about <laughs> anything else you've heard about this evening, do share it with us now. And Karen has the mic. Yes, uh, behind you, Karen. I think this is more of a question about the ink blots and how it was supposed to be related to her work, and if the if you found that relation, and you know if the height of how she hung it bothered you. I looked for the relation, but it actually wasn't even um, mirror symmetry, so it was hard to figure out why it was vaguely Rorschachian. Um, mm-hmm. Anyone? I guess we were supposed to look into it and find our hidden psychological depths or something. You didn't find yours? I found mine, but it, I found someone else's. That was what was really embarrassing about it, you know. A, transend- a transgender <laughs> one, perhaps. I think it's interesting that she wants it to look like something that spreads uninhibitedly when the work is so inhibited. Yes. Yes. Anyone, anyone else want to address the issue of the Rorschach that um, gives its title, the, the title of um, Cornelia Parker's piece? Would, would be, um, it, is a, it is a very good question. I think, um, yeah, I mean, the fact that they are found objects but of a very particular kind and the fact that they have been um, pressed is, has a kind of very, um, you know, associative sense of being pressed into our memory, as it were, and being you know, stray artifacts. It just struck me these are often things that are given as wedding presents. Yeah, that's and right. And she's um, been involved in um, sort of deconstructing the wedding ring and so on and so forth, so... 
I think there's there's something there that's sort of sad. Yeah. It's over kind of feeling, or they could be something that you inherited when somebody died. So there's a, there's a sense of of uh, you know, this sense of loss. That's why this. the pressed flowers seem to me a, yeah. A, a yes, a memento, memento yeah. mori. Yes, yes. Um, okay. Well, um, it's a cold night. We all should get something warm into us, everybody, and see you back here on March the fourth. Thank you very much indeed. Thank you. Excellent. Oh, bang on time. That's nice.